Now, as we said last week, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew chapter 13 is a chapter that is chock full of parables, that there are seven parables in this one chapter, and there are some pretty big ones in there. We have the parable of the soil, where there are all different kinds of soil, and the sower spreads the seed out in, into the different kinds of soil, and it grows in good soil, and it doesn't grow in others. He also explains with this parable why he talks in parables in the first place. We have the parable of the weeds, waiting until the end to separate the wheat from the weeds because the farmer doesn't want to pull up the wheat by pulling up the weeds at the same time. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, that small things have great effect. The parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, which we covered last week. The parable of the nets, separating the good fish from the bad. He also uh, says a couple of other smaller things, and all of these teachings fall in the middle of what are some pretty major conflicts and dramatic events. In uh, the previous chapter, he had been arguing with Pharisees and had an encounter with his family. In the next chapter, John the Baptist is beheaded, he feeds the 5,000, and he walks on water. I don't have a chapter like that in my life. And just be to be straight with you there. Given all that was going on, then we know that these parables were placed in this spot intentionally to give us some clarity in the midst of these challenging events. And in each of these parables, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's it's the phrase that opens up most of these. And it's important for us, again, to note that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about heaven as we understand it, that it's this some far-off destination that we don't know when or where or how. We just know that someday we will be there. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about things that are happening in his ministry, in his world right then and are still happening right now because Jesus is still changing the world, right? And so some of these uh, parables have elements of things that are far off, uh, like the sorting of the fish or the sorting of the wheat and the weeds. But they are also talking about things that are happening right now. So last week we looked at the treasure, uh, or the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And one of the things that we saw from those is that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that anyone who experiences it will not question whether it is worth giving up everything to have it because the kingdom of heaven is that good. It is that great. It is overwhelmingly, obviously valuable. And we also talked about how it's not our job to decide who gets to encounter this kingdom and under what circumstances they get to encounter this kingdom. After all, within those parables, one guy stumbled on it, another guy searched his whole life, which tells us that people are going to come across the kingdom of heaven at all kinds of different times, in different ways, but once they discover it as it is, it is undeniably great. So much so that they would give everything in their lives to have it. And we ask the difficult question, if people are not responding to the message of Christianity that we are putting out, then are we showing them the right version of the kingdom? Are, are we showing them 
the kingdom that represents what Jesus is talking about, or are we showing them something else that maybe looks a little less like what Jesus was talking about and a little more what we are comfortable with? Now, the challenge then is that we are to strive in every moment to present a kingdom of God that is overwhelmingly good, so much so that people will say, I cannot believe this is for me. I cannot believe that God thinks of me in this way. I cannot believe that God would want me to have life with him. Praise God. The kingdom is wonderful. I mean, that's what we're looking for, right? That's what we want from this experience. And it's a great challenge for us today with our current cultural climate. And to be fair, it's always been a challenge for us to present the kingdom in a way that people will hear and accept it and see how good it is. In fact, I know a lot of us carry around some insecurities when it comes to talking about Christianity to people that are not Christians. And I've heard so many times, well, I I don't know what to say or I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. That represents in us a fear that we are not going to present the kingdom like we should. And then when you add to it the kinds of kingdom of the kinds of the kingdom of God that are represented by us in all these different ways, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's difficult to do to show the kingdom as it is. The climate that has developed over, you know, the last eight to ten years or so has caused me to struggle um, with the kingdom that is being represented to the rest of the world. Now, sometimes you guys come to me and you say, hey, Bryce, I need to talk to you about something. We schedule an appointment. You come in and sit on my couch, and I pretend that I'm listening. And then I, you know, tell you God loves you. And, you know, so that, that, sometimes that's what happened. Uh, this morning, you are my therapist. Because some sermons are me venting about things that bother me. And you get to play my role in the previous section, so you get to pretend like you're listening and then tell me afterwards it was great. So do we understand the ground rules for this thing? Good. I'm glad. just wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, You remember, because it wasn't all that long ago, although it feels like a long time ago, uh, when there was this little pandemic thing going on in the world, and uh, culture, our world, our nation in particular, was just in upheaval over all sorts of things. And uh, racism came back to the forefront. Um, There was a lot of anger in our country. Anger over what people were being told to do that they didn't want to do. Anger over how people were being treated or the idea that they deserved how they were being treated. It just all bubbled into this like hot, ugly stew of humanity. That was pretty gross. And I, I, you know, as that was happening, I, I remember thinking to myself, I never thought I would have to explain current day Nazism to my children. Like, I, I preferred that being a historical lesson and not being a right now lesson. I mean, it's weird, right? Our world has always been weird and it's always been wacky, but it seems like everything just phew, 
right? And to that degree, it's still that way. And I think I've shared this with you before, but allow me to do it again, because I know you remember everything I've ever told you. <clears throat> what? What? You do. I mean, I, I had a friend who uh, got involved in, and he's a pastor of a church, he got involved uh, talking about some, one of the issues that was going on that day. And um, so he had posted something about uh, Christianity and God and the kingdom and how we treat people and all this sort of stuff. And someone who I think was from his church or someone that he was loosely associated with wrote this long response back. And it was angry. Uh, I don't remember what the button was that he pushed, but it is as if he put his whole weight on that button and just smashed it down because this person was upset and going off on how awful certain people were and suggesting that there was no place for them and what should be done with these people. Again, I don't remember who these people were. Just go with me here. And I do not, you know, I don't insert myself into those conversations unless I feel really moved to do so. And in that moment, I felt really moved to do so. And so I, I, I mentioned, uh, I, I might have, I, you know, I'm trying to remember, I, I might have mentioned the parable of the lost sheep or something like that, but I was saying, you know, God really loves us and, and God loves everyone and wants everyone to come to a relationship with him and basically just said, spoke the gospel into that moment. And this was the response I got from her. I got the eye roll emoji. You know what I'm talking about. The one where the emoji is trying to look up into its skull. It is one of the most patronizing emojis. There's a phrase you never thought you would hear. That's right. That we have in our extra keyboard of emojis. And I remember being... Um, unequipped to handle that response to what I believed was the gospel of Jesus Christ from another Christian. An eye roll as if to say, oh, you're so naive. Or, oh, you're just going to try to throw the love of God over this. Don't you see that I'm angry and I'm right to be angry? How dare you speak the gospel into this as if God would love these people. That's everything I heard. And this nonverbal, inanimate object, it spoke deeply to me. Did you just roll your eyes at the gospel? Did you just roll your eyes at the suggestion that we are to love others even if we find ourselves on the opposite side of the spectrum from where they are? And obviously, guys, this moment has stuck with me. This is the therapy part. Just tell me I'm special at the end and we'll be okay. But I couldn't believe this. I, I, I couldn't imagine a world where Christianity and the gospel seemed to be so unfamiliar with one another. As if 
The message of the gospel and God's love is that God wins battles for me, but he's not going to win them for you. Now, I can't find that message in Scripture, that God only loves certain people, and that we are justified in treating people that do not believe in God or believe in Jesus in any way we want to because they are so offensive to God. Now, I know there are some Scriptures you can pull out, well, Bryce, what about this or what about that? But if you look closely at many of those scriptures, there is more there than you think there is. There is more there than God just, or Jesus, or Paul, or anyone just saying, get rid of these people. One of the, one of the best examples is, you know, in Corinthians, when Paul tells them to expel the immoral brother, that there is no place for this person, who is admittedly doing some pretty terrible things, there's no room for this person in the assembly. You need to get them out, otherwise they could taint the whole place. But what we miss when we look at that passage is there is a follow-up passage in 2 Corinthians where he asked the church, that person you kicked out, how are they doing now? Do they want to come back? Are you reaching out to them? Are you sharing with them that God still loves them? There's more there to these passages that seem to tell us we should separate ourselves at any cost from others who don't think the same way we do. So unfortunately, the problem of communicating about the kingdom has not been solved. In fact, you can throw a rock in any direction and find people who believe that it is their job to defend their ideal of the kingdom of heaven by eradicating whatever the threat is at the time. I mean, we're getting offended about all sorts of things, aren't we? Now, look, I, I want you to understand me correctly. And if you have any questions about things that I'm saying, uh, please come talk to Randy after church, and he will answer all of your questions. I'm not saying that the church can't stand for something and shouldn't stand for something. I'm also not saying that the church shouldn't speak into cultural issues. What I'm saying is we need to be more considerate about the message that we are giving on behalf of God. Because sometimes what I see is that Christians are viewing themselves as the defenders of the kingdom of God, that they're their, their objective is to crush the evildoer, to put them in their place, and by doing so, to reject them as thoroughly as possible. Therefore, someone who does this becomes this, becomes this, becomes ultimately this irredeemable thing. Now, side note, I'm not talking about any of you. No, really, I'm not. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because this is present. And there are people in our world where their experience with Christianity is a message about how disgusting they are and about how God doesn't love them and won't love them until they do X, Y, or Z. So are we all on the same page with that? Okay. So there are three questions I want you to consider. They're weird questions, but hear me out. 
all right? Number one, do we need to defend the kingdom of God? First question. Number two, how do we do that? If we feel we need to, then how do we do it? And third question, what happens if we don't? Now, our answer to these questions, do we need to defend the kingdom of God? How do we defend the kingdom of God? And what happens if we don't are all significant questions. And you might, you probably all have slightly different answers to those three questions, depending upon how you view mainly the world today and the things that are going on in it. So it's all of this, unbelievably, I know you're going to say, Bryce, how does this match anything in Matthew chapter 13? Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, that's a lot of flour. Let's be, be honest about that there. Let's talk about these two images that Jesus puts out in front of us. Uh, in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman world, mustard seeds were proverbially known for their small size, although... Uh, other seeds, such as the orchid or the cypress, were smaller seeds. Uh, and also, we know that while a must, there's been debate over this, so this is why we're going to just mention this, the mustard seed doesn't actually become a tree. It becomes like a large shrub bush. So, does that mean <laughs> this parable is wrong because it's not the smallest seed and it's not a tree? No, Jesus is not interested in the technicalities of this thing. He's trying to get us to understand an image. Now, the mustard seed, though it is not the smallest seed, it is one millimeter in diameter and is so tiny, it requires from 725 to 760 seeds to equal one gram. So it's small, folks. All right, you don't have to worry about that. Now, the whole point of the mustard seed is that it is small. It is tiny. It is forgettable. It is easy to overlook. And yet, if this one seed were to be planted, it produces a relatively large plant. So big that animals can take shade under this plant. Something small becomes something really big. Something tiny and insignificant grows into something much larger than you would think it should be able to. And guess what? The kingdom of heaven is like this. 
It's also like an amount of yeast that is mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. Now, at that time, they, wouldn't, they didn't have yeast like we understand yeast to be. They didn't go to the grocery store and buy the packet, you know, and like dump it in. Instead, what they had was a, a fermenting dough that they kept this dough separate and they would uh, uh, keep some aside at all times if they could and they would take a small amount of that dough and they would mix it into whatever it was they were making and that fermented dough would cause the entire lot to rise. It was leaven, that's what it did. And so he's telling us here when he says that the, that the person took yeast, the, the hearers, the readers at the time, they would understand how much that was. So it doesn't really matter to us how much yeast there is as compared to the 60 pounds, but we know with 60 pounds of flour, it takes more than just flour and yeast to make bread, right? So this ends up being what? Some sort of like 80-pound mixture by the time it's all said and done? And let's just say then, for the sake of example, one of the numbers that was thrown out in my reading was it could be one pound of leaven. So one pound of leaven versus 79 pounds of other things, right? And what does that leaven do? It changes the composition of the entire lot and makes it into something that it would not be if it were not there. How could something so small make all of that rise? Well, that's, that's what it does. It's what it is. That's its purpose. Now, <laughs> why is she baking so much bread? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, they like bread. I don't know. Um, in the ancient world, uh, most houses were pretty small, and so they wouldn't necessarily have a place to bake bread within you know, approximately like a 15-foot square house. So there were communal ovens. And people might not only be baking for themselves or their family, they might be baking for their neighbors. Maybe there's a rotation of who bakes bread this week. At any rate, they wouldn't have thought this was weird because this is a normal part of life. The unit of flour she used would make enough to feed 100 to 150 people if the measurements are understood properly. 60 pounds of flour is a lot of flour. So even though the leaven is far less than the flour, it changes the composition of the whole thing. Now, what is it that Jesus is trying to work out with his followers? What does he want them to understand? Well, there were many who saw what Jesus was doing. They heard his words about God and the love of God. And Jesus, in this really dramatic way, was taking God off the shelf. You know, God was on the top shelf, and you couldn't approach him. You just kind of looked at him from afar. But you weren't really looking at him. You were looking at a mirror over here so you could see the top shelf. Like God is distant from you. And Jesus is bringing God right down into the middle of everyday life. And not just any everyday life, but the life of people that are terrible people, some would say. Are people that don't, 
deserve this kind of treatment and are people that God doesn't think of this way. So to some, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven as they saw it in Jesus was a huge disappointment. It is not what they thought it would be. And surely they thought this can't be it. Like what Jesus is doing, this can't be what the kingdom of God is like. Now, why would they think that? Well, it's because their vision of the Messiah was that he would be a triumphant king, that he would come at the head of an army, that he would raise up Israel, Jerusalem in particular, that he would crush all of their enemies under his heel, that anyone who had oppressed Israel would be put in their place, and that Jerusalem would be the place where God resides, and all the world would recognize that Israel, that they are the people of God, and no one would be able to stand before them. So in other words, their idea of the kingdom of heaven was that it would be a really great time for them. A time, of, a time of power and glory. But the kingdom that Jesus was creating and calling the kingdom of heaven, to them was not a kingdom at all. I mean, imagine how it must have looked to people who were expecting this great, dynamic, powerful leader. When there's this homeless guy being followed by other weirdos, drawing all the wrong people, and telling them that God loves them and it's okay. That they can change their lives too. This is not victory over Rome. This isn't even victory over the sinful. This is no victory at all. And you're telling me that I need to listen to you and become like these people? And become like children? It's offensive this non-kingdom you're calling a kingdom. And this is not what Jesus was doing. But you know, it's interesting for us to note on our end of this <clears throat> that when Jesus came, he could have come in any manifestation that God wanted him to. In other words, God could have sent a conquering hero that looked exactly like and did the things that people expected the Messiah to do. He could have crushed Rome and all the Gentiles that did not believe in God under his heel. But God chose not to do that. Why? What did he choose to do instead? He chose to get down and dirty with people. He got into their lives. He learned what they were about. God loved recklessly like the sower who throws the seeds out wherever they will go. He actively, purposefully loved people he was not supposed to love in such a way that the religious leaders came to him and said, how can you even be in the same room with these people? What's the matter with you? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know what they're about? He loved recklessly, and in fact, he sought those kinds of people out and loved them sometimes in the very face of those that rejected them. You can almost imagine Jesus giving someone a deep, thoughtful hug 
and making eye contact with the Pharisee across the room, right? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm loving this person. So I want to say this one more time. Jesus loved people in the face of those who rejected them. And many of those people, because of the way that Jesus acted and the things that Jesus said, they rejected him as well. The religious people who knew God the best rejected the kingdom that Jesus presented to them because it was too much. It was too radical, and it was not what it was supposed to be. And in fact, Jesus was not really violent or threatening at all. I mean, the only people he used harsh language with, you know, it wasn't the tax collector and the prostitute and whoever else. It was those people who were telling everyone else that, God, you're not okay for God. You may never be okay for God. In fact, God might want you to be dead based on the things you do and the life that you live. I'm so glad our world is not like that anymore. But back to the kingdom. The problem people had with it is that, really, the kingdom of God was so small. It was so small. It was so small, and therefore, in their eyes, it was so insignificant. What kind of an effect can this kingdom actually have? Rome is still in power. You're telling me that we're going to hug it out with Rome? It's not going to work. Could what was happening with Jesus and his disciples really be the establishment of God's kingdom? How is this a display of God's mighty power? How is he going to overcome evil and the nations oppressing Israel? How can it come so unexpectedly and so unnoticed? This cannot be the kingdom of God if it doesn't change the world in all of the big ways we want it to. Which, what is it they wanted? For the world to recognize that they were God's people. They were right. They were wrong. It's what they wanted. God can't be about this small thing. God wants the big thing. I want to pause here for a moment and recognize something important, is that we too are at times not satisfied with what we view as a smaller kingdom. We have prioritized other ideas, other ideas that present a larger kingdom. Things like Christian nationalism, things like legislating Christian morals, things like ostracizing those who don't hold the same worldview as us. And part of the reason, as I, as I see it, again, is that we want Christianity to win. We really do. Now, there's nothing wrong, necessarily, with wanting Christianity to win. But what does that mean, that Christianity wins? Is it the idea that Israel had, which is, God will establish Christianity as the power and the authority in the world? 
that all its enemies will be crushed in front of it. That those who reject God are our enemies. And they should be treated with whatever amount of aggression enemies deserve. Sometimes we want Christianity to win so much that we forget that God has already won. Sometimes we act as if the goal of the kingdom is that people will act the way we believe they should, acknowledging our way of life, maybe even calling themselves Christians. Instead of being people whose messy lives are being changed by encountering something life-changing. In knowing the love of God in Jesus. Now, are those two things mutually exclusive, where someone lives uh, a way that reflects Christian values and they know the love of God? No, of course not. But don't we see plenty of people sending out the message on behalf of God that people are awful and need to change their lives in order for God to love them at all? God won't love you until you. And do we give that message installing those same people that you know God has loved you since before you were born. Jesus died for you long before you ever existed. And he loves you in a way that is going to be difficult for you to grasp. Because I know he loves me, and I can't begin to explain to you the love that God has for me. Unknowingly, I think we sometimes want, and I say unknowingly because I think generally people are, you know, trying to do this thing right, but unknowingly sometimes we want the kingdom to be more like Rome and less like the kingdom of God. We want the big, dominating, conquering kingdom, and yet there was Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God, that the kingdom was alive and growing, and it was doing it not in these huge, dramatic ways, but it was doing it in these small ways that were earth world-changing. You know, it's almost like he's saying in that parable, the yeast doesn't have to be equal visually to, ever, to the rest of it. Do you know why? Because all it takes is a little bit. A little bit of kingdom will change the composition of the rest of it, no matter how big it is. And if it starts to get too big, a little bit more kingdom will do even more to the larger amount. The kingdom cannot be outpaced, you see, by the things that are going on around it. The kingdom, Jesus said, was happening in small ways, in ways that were overlooked by the powerful. But the change that God was bringing through Jesus, it was different. But what was happening was way bigger than they were seeing. So, what do we do with this message? I want to suggest a couple of practical things really quick. Um, 
Sometimes we find ourselves in this position of wondering why, um, wondering why, you know, the world is hostile to us, and don't they know that we know God and we know Jesus, and, and don't they know that we're right? And sometimes we get motivated to prove that what we have or what we're doing is the thing, and we want people to reflect that back to us. So first thing I want you to understand is this. Don't be surprised if people in the world are going to do things that are offensive to you and not care about it. We think they should. We do. You should care about this because it's offensive to me. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Look, I, I get it, I really do. We want the world to be a Christian world. We know that God is right, and therefore, by extension, we are on shaky ground, but we are correct in some of the things that we believe, and we believe the world should reflect that. And in fact, sometimes we don't understand how people don't see the truth. The truth. Well, Jesus plainly told us, look, guys, the world wasn't too crazy about me. And if it hates me, it's going to hate you as well. And what's interesting is he doesn't promise a time where that won't be the case. But, you know, once this happens, you're golden. He doesn't say that. The world hated Jesus so much, it killed him just to get him out of the way. And none of us come anywhere close to that in our everyday lives, no matter how oppressed or unappreciated we might feel. We have it infinitely better than Jesus did. And I think sometimes we forget that. That the Son of God had a more difficult time than we do. But secondly, we are not to hate the world back. All right? The the world will hate us. That's how it is. But you are not to hate the world back. You know why? Because you are not a citizen of the world. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now let me tell you something. The kingdom of heaven has a different ethic than the kingdom of the world. Not a different morality. Not a different this is what you do, this is what you don't do. A different ethic. A way of, of looking at things and having a value in your life. And we are given a practical way to live the kingdom in front of those we disagree with, no matter who they are. From Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I hate it when Jesus says the exact thing I don't want him to say. 
I mean, like, come on, Bryce, how are we supposed to argue with Jesus? You can try. But notice that you are not praying that they will suffer, that they will see the light, that they will apologize to you. In fact, you are to pray for them just as God acts already to them. Meaning, what? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. It shines where? Everywhere. And it's up to that person whether they will see the light or not. And look, the, the world may not see the light. And they may, in your mind, become your enemy because of how they stand against you. And there used to be an ethic that said, you can love your neighbors and you can hate your enemies. Well, who's my neighbor? And what makes someone my enemy? I mean, that's terribly subjective, isn't it? So what does Jesus say? You don't get to decide. Instead, you pray blessings over everyone, no matter who they are. It's convicting to me that Jesus did not come to conquer the world. He came to conquer sin and death. And he came here to love the world. And God knows that by loving the world, a kingdom that reflects the true nature of God will be the end product, even if it's small. So let's get back to our original questions as we close. Number one, do we need to defend the kingdom of God? What does that look like if we do? And if we don't defend the kingdom of God, what happens? Well, these parables give us a pretty important message that we cannot overlook. Number one, there is a misperception in today's world that the kingdom of God is in danger of being overcome. You hear it all the time. We are being oppressed. We are, they're going to make it so there are no Christians ever anywhere. We're all going to be killed at some point, and Christianity will cease to exist. And this whole idea, friends, is not true. It's just not. And the reason why it's not true is that God is undefeated. His love is greater than whatever you want to put into that blank. And there, was, there is nothing that will stop the kingdom of God from existing. Because it's not our kingdom. It's His. And how weird is that, that I think the kingdom of God is going to disappear if I don't fight for it. So secondly, and this is going to sound weird, but the kingdom of God does not need us to protect it. Especially, it does not need us to beat others into submission for its sake. 
with whatever club we want to pick up. It doesn't need us to do that. This is not how the kingdom grows. How does the kingdom grow? It's something small that becomes something big. It's, it's an undeniable force within whatever it is. It changes the chemistry of everything it's involved in. The kingdom of God is so valuable and so great, it does this without my help. You know? It does this without my help. Because this fighting, this name-calling, this finger-pointing is not how the kingdom grows. It's how the kingdom shrinks and becomes something less than the kingdom that God desires. And here's a big shift for us. The kingdom does not have to be the main thing everywhere in order to change the world in which it exists. You know, Jesus was counter-cultural. And by its very definition, culture is something big, right? And typically the movements that are counter-cultural are so small compared to something so big. And the ethic, the morals, the things that Jesus was teaching were not only against Rome, contrary to what Rome believed, they were against what the religious in Israel believed. It was that countercultural that his own people didn't like it. His own people didn't like it. And yet here we are, how many years later? Praising God for Jesus and talking about how he makes our lives something it would not be without him. The kingdom of God is powerful enough on its own and where it exists, it will thrive and change the composition of what it comes into contact with. A couple more questions, then we'll be done, I promise. Does God consider people that don't follow him to be his enemies? No, he does not. Is God threatened by unbelievers? No. If the treasure's not found, is it not worth anything? <laughs> no. It is still the same. It is still worth everything, even if it's not found. God is not threatened by unbelievers. His kingdom is not threatened by those who stand against it. It just isn't because God doesn't see unbelievers as his enemies. He sees them as lost sheep that he will drop everything to go and find and carry back so that they will be safe. Jesus died for those people, whether they believe it or not. He still did. And sometimes we're the ones that need to remember that. Because who is the enemy? The evil one. The evil one whose sole purpose is to create separation between God and his creation. And when we're told to put on the full armor of God, it's so we can resist who? Satan, not your neighbor. The power of the kingdom in this world is not found in its morality. It's found in the way that it radically loves people, especially those who are outside. And God wanted to love people into the kingdom, not defeat them 
into the kingdom. How do you defeat the power of sin? Well, Jesus showed us through love and sacrifice. He had all, God had already tried the moral code, and how did that go? Not great. But he changed the world through love. So friends, listen. God is undefeated. His kingdom will not be stopped. Amen? It is victorious over sin and death and the evil one. And it loves indiscriminately, which is good news because it probably wouldn't choose a lot of us if it was discriminate. It changes all that it comes into contact with. It is not small. It is just what it's supposed to be. And when we think it's small, it's just because it doesn't look like we think it should. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is big and mighty and powerful, a wave that still has the power to roll over this world and change people's lives in ways that they could not imagine. Amen. And if we love people as Jesus loves, if they know more about how we love them and God loves them, than they do about why they're wrong. Then that seed will be planted that can grow into something that doesn't make sense. It's too big. It's too big for this small thing. We will see the kingdom of God God grow within our midst. And that's what I want. I don't want more people to say we're right and they're wrong. I want more people to be overwhelmed, to fall on their knees because they can't believe the greatness of the love of God for them.